his karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams, thanks for everything, mom and dad, will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everyone. Incidentally, so is my fever. <laughs> Kidding. Mel, I'm so cold but hot. Uh, but I'm gonna get you that budget. Just as soon as... Right. Mikey! Popcorn bowl! Press 1 to use Instacart and get your family's sick day essentials delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. Press 2 to keep working. Do not press 2. Just use Instacart. Brian. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host, Jason Brooks. Thanks for joining The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. A year ago, Hong Kong citizens took to the streets protesting a bill which would allow China to extradite Hong Kong residents to the mainland. Hong Kong's government eventually pulled the bill, but the protest movement only grew, leading to violent confrontations with the police, with Beijing positioning the PLA on the outskirts of Hong Kong as a reminder to not go too far. Beijing has taken a new step to further quash Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement, introducing new national security laws for Hong Kong, to prohibit secession, subversion, and external influence. Joining the crisis next door to talk about what these new laws mean and the future of Hong Kong is James Palmer, deputy editor at Foreign Policy and the author of The Bloody White Baron, the extraordinary story of the Russian nobleman who became the last Khan of Mongolia and the death of Mao, the Tangshan earthquake and the birth of the new China. James, thank you for joining the crisis next door. It's grand to be here. How serious are these new security laws for Hong Kong? Is an end to the one country, two systems rule underway right now? Very much so. And Hong Kong is already talking about, you know, 2020 being 2047, the year when things were supposed to come to an end and the, uh, the territory was supposed to be incorporated into the mainland. Effectively, these laws give the authorities the ability to crush pretty much any potential dissidents. The very all-encompassing, the very flexible, um, and they're also a signal that Beijing is not willing to tolerate any more autonomy. Considering the response we saw last year to the extradition bill, should we expect the same from pro-democracy supporters now? Is the energy still there from 2019? I think it is, and we saw that already with the uh, June 4th vigil, which was banned for the first time in years, the vigil for the victims of Tiananmen Square. And Although it was banned, uh, the crowd still turned out in numbers despite pandemic concerns, um, despite Hong Kongers have practiced very vigorous social distancing as a rule. Um, And it's really been the only thing keeping a cap on the protests from exploding again has been fear of the pandemic. So as that ebbs, particularly in Hong Kong, and which has been even more successful than China as a whole at containing the virus, um, you're going to see people back on the streets. You're going to see... um, clashes with police, you're going to see the police feeling empowered to commit more acts of brutality. Has there been any uh, current crackdown on pro-democracy supporters as they do start to emerge from the pandemic? Even before the national security law was passed, we've seen arrests of pro-democracy politicians. We've seen 
the targeting of media that goes after the government, uh, satirical programs being taken off the air over supposed decency concerns, um, and a really concerted assault in the last two or three months um, against not only the protesters but the parts of sort of Hong of Hong Kong society that support them. The publisher of Hong Kong's pro-democracy newspaper, Apple Daily, described the situation like being under the blade of a guillotine and that there's no halfway, it's falling. It, it almost feels like it's a, a fait accompli at this point. I think it's a fait accompli on the, on the legal side and the government side. You know, the supposed autonomy of the Hong Kong government has been effectively stripped away. You know, the mask is off. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's over. You know, Hong Kong is an extremely committed people. They're people who strongly believe in their own rights, um, both uh, both their rights, both um, the people who strongly believe in their own rights and who and who have come to cherish and um, value those rights over time um, and learned to fight for them. And I think we're going to see huge resistance, um, not from not obviously from business because business is already rolling over to lick the boot, but from young people from. Uh, artists, musicians, um, and even from some of the sort of older, more established um, ho Hong Kong uh, legal uh, legal figures, the, we might see pretty big pushback within the legal system uh, as much as they can um, until the point when they're told to stop, or when they're, uh, or when they're literally, or when their lives or freedom are threatened themselves. On an earlier episode of The Crisis Next Door, I talked with Joshua Wong, the Secretary General of Demasisto, a student-driven pro-democracy movement for Hong Kong, and his belief and passion were incredibly powerful. How critical is that youthful energy for the pro-democracy movement? As you mentioned, you're starting to see some businesses, as you said, lick the boot. The youth element is huge, and when you look at the numbers, you can see how completely the sense of identity has changed in the last 20 years. So, um, even 10 years. So, 10 years ago, something like I think like something like 30% of Hong Kongers as a whole saw themselves as Chinese. Um, now, among people under 30, that number is less than 3%. Uh, it's it's low across the board, but the for the under 30s, the idea of being Chinese is completely gone, completely unacceptable. And um, the question is, I think, does that generation stay and fight in Hong Kong? Or do we see an exodus of people, especially as the options open up to go to Britain, perhaps to go to the United States and elsewhere? Um, does the territory retain its kind of life and vitality and keep fighting? Or does it, or does it kind of go into like a, a, a sullen, quiet kind of descent? It almost feels like this would be that turning point. If you had to, you know, place a bet, do you think that most of the youth will stay in Hong Kong and fight for independence? Or do you think that they will seek greener pastures elsewhere in the world where they, they can exercise their independence? I think most people will stay. It's very hard to leave home. And it's a lot of them also don't have the kind of class resources that you need to emigrate. Some of them are certainly sort of, you know, middle class, upper middle class. But a lot of these are working class kids. Um, and that's been one of the things that has sort of somewhat changed in the last couple of years, too. The protests have extended beyond um, a core that was originally vague, you know, sort of respectable middle class um, students to the working classes, to others. Um, so to become a sort of much more whole of society movement among young people. 
Why do you think that Xi Jinping is so worried about Hong Kong? Does he fear the spread of civil liberties to the mainland? Is he worried about how this will affect Taiwan's desire to remain independent of Chinese control? I don't think he thinks of it in, in of Taiwan in those terms because, of course, every crackdown that China does in Hong Kong makes Taiwan more hostile towards uh, rejoining the mainland. Uh, the Hong Kong protests were the only factor in the re-election of Tsai Ing-wen um, this January when she won a sweeping victory, having been in a very close race in Taiwan earlier. But they were a big factor. They, they um, played a powerful role, and Taiwanese follow Hong Kong very closely. So nor do I think that he's really worried about infection um, to the mainland. They're, because, to be honest, there's not a lot of connection culturally and socially between Hong Kong and the mainland in ideas at the moment. I mean, even though they share common cultural roots, um, they to some degree share a language. Of course, lots of mainlanders speak Cantonese, um, even though it's be, even though there have been efforts to um, stamp it out in recent years or reduce its public presence. But the sense of difference is very great. And there haven't been strong efforts to link up kind of the two, partially because on the Chinese side, the environment is so shut down. So uh, the, the uh, range of speech is so small at the moment. So what I th- what I think worries him is a, a couple of things. I think firstly, he worries that open defiance makes him look weak, makes uh, him look like a failure. Um, and the only response that he really has is to try and crush it more uh, because those are the techniques that have worked on the mainland. Those are the techniques that have become part of the, um, of the domestic political repertoire. And the other thing is I think that there's this... That, um, as the mainlands crack down on speech, as uh, ha- as the mainlands crack down on speech has got worse, as the space for political discussion has got smaller and smaller under Xi, this has generated a kind of impetus of its own, whereby um, Chinese officials are under constant pressure to be more nationalist, to be harder line, because if they're not, even if they don't believe that that's the right technique, even if they think that that's actually counterproductive in terms of relationships with Hong Kong or foreign relations, it's the only way that they can survive politically at home. Because otherwise, say they publish a paper that says, you know, maybe we should back off Hong Kong, an internal paper, you know, like a paper for discussion within the CCP that says, maybe we should back off Hong Kong for like five years and give ourselves a little bit of space and just like let it, let it get back to making money. You know, their somebody, their political rival, their enemy, the, somebody who wants their job, is going to take the paper and send it to like some and send it to somebody two levels above them and say, "Look at this traitor!" You know, betraying the um, betraying the motherland. So that's created this really dangerous impulse on the mainland, where it's it's really become separated from strategy or like or geopolitical considerations or what will actually work best for the country and become about individual political survival. So that being the case, does that mean that she is more worried about looking weak in front of his fellow Chinese Communist Party members instead of appearing weak in front of the Chinese population? I I think it's a mix. Yeah, I think I think he sees that the two is connected. He's worried about he's worried about the idea that he would be the one who like lost who like lost Hong Kong. Um, and that that would be part of his legacy. And that, that's both a public way and a direct way of this is something that my enemies within the party could use against me. Because Xi's own power is very fragile. The power, I mean, the power of all autocrats to some degree is fragile, but she has turned a system that was once a 
group system, a consensus system at the top, meaning consensus among, you know, like a few hundred elite members of the Communist Party, not, not democracy, and turn it into one-man rule. And that's a very fragile situation because all that takes the push under the right circumstances for the party to turn against him and to, to flip the message. Um, but also he's... Also, um, I think we've, we've seen this effect whereby the, the virulence of the crackdowns in Tibet and Xinjiang, some of these other um, territories that are disputed parts of China where the local population does not want to be part of China, where they have a long history of independence, um, that the, those attitudes, the attitudes that um, any opposition is terrorism and treachery and foreign influence and black hands undermining the party has really started to seep into even Hong Kong, which is so much more different and so much more open and accessible and visible than those territories. James, the U.S. responded quickly to Beijing's move with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo saying that Hong Kong could no longer be considered a meaningfully autonomous territory and there could be a range of U.S. countermeasures, including dropping Hong Kong's special trading status. How big of a deal would that move be and what can the U.S. do to get Beijing to roll back the new laws? The truth is, I don't think there's anything that the U.S. can do to get Beijing to roll back the new laws. I think that Chinese domestic politics has become very so disconnected from the sort of geopolitical weight that the, the forms of influence that the U.S. can bring to bear simply won't override the pressures internally. In fact, giving in to them would be seen as, as fatal weakness by uh, CCP leaders. So the U.S. can take measures to indicate its displeasure, they can um, take measures to try and limit Chinese power. They can provide refuge to Hong Kongers. But I don't think that they can actually force the national security law to be rescinded. Hong Kong leader Kerry Lam has denied the new security legislation will curtail media freedom, which is guaranteed under Article 27 of the Basic Law, the mini-constitution agreed to by China when it took back control of the former British colony in 1997. Do you believe her? No, nobody believes that. But even her, it's a purely cynical statement. Not even her own side believes that. Um, they'll, there will be, it'll be like Russia. There'll be, in theory, some media freedoms. There may be places still allowed to, to publish, but the cost of the, of any risky of any risky article or publishing distant writers will start to grow and grow, forcing mainstream publishers, places like the South China Morning Post. Um, to become more and more pro-establishment, a process we've always already seen happening to some degree, and um, and forcing um, truly independent or dissident publications really to the margins. Um, so it won't be that everybody will be arrested, or that or that publishing something automatically gets you arrested. There'll be enough arrests and enough crackdowns and enough you know sudden and enough sudden attack um, like um tax ex examinations or visa restrictions or this kind of things to make the environment incredibly difficult. And Hong Kong's legislature passed a law that criminalizes mocking China's national anthem because it's often booed in Hong Kong. How is this going down in the territory? And do you foresee mass challenges to the law? I mean, how can they unrest in an entire arena for booing? Yeah, I think this is going to be, this was an incredibly foolish move. And again, it's an example of how these sort of, um, like domestic shibboleths uh, have overridden practical politics. Because of course, if you tell a football crowd that they can't boo something, they're going to boo it even harder on the principle that you can't arrest anyone, everyone. And the question is, will we see a cycle then whereby 
Communist Party officials in Beijing see these issues of the national anthem being booed again and demand even stricter action and mass arrests, which prompts more protests, which prompts the national anthem to be booed even more. I mean, it really seems like it's just a, a, a downward spiral from here. Now, considering the pandemic and the economic damage suffered by China this year, is Beijing biting off more than it can chew? I mean, on top of Hong Kong, it's still wrangling over trade with the U.S. and it's embroiled in another standoff with India in a disputed region of Kashmir. I think it is. And I think that these um, costs are going to really come back and bite it. Um, you know, the Chinese economy was already looking, well, it was it was looking like, a, like an economy that had outgrown the sort of 30-year, like, reaping dividends of, of easy modernization or relatively easy modernization. And we're starting to struggle with some really big challenges about how do you move up the value ladder? How do you deal with local debt or this kind of thing? And instead of having the energy to like make those reforms and focus on those problems, we're now seeing the Chinese state becoming occupied with these um, squabbles all along its borders. Um, with We're seeing it taking on new economic costs by trying to fight trade wars. We're seeing strategies such as um, Chinese state-backed businesses like uh, Huawei, which you know, are technically a private business, but it, as we all know in practice, highly backed by the state, getting massive pushback worldwide. Um, and my feeling is that among the Chinese sort of elite, among the, the rich, there's certainly an awareness of those costs and a frustration with that. Um, when I uh, talked to people and, you know, people who are mostly, you know, small millionaires, let's say, like the, the, the Beijing, like upper class, but not the, not like the, the uber rich, but people who went uh, who went to the US, had family there, did business worldwide. They were very unhappy with Xi even two years ago. And I, I think that there's a degree that that unhappiness may only be growing. Now, on the other side, on the other side, nationalism is a powerful drug. And the idea, you know, well, you know, we might be paying this cost, but we're fighting a war for China's, uh, for China's survival against the US. We're fighting a war to make ourselves great again. It's just an economic war. That may be very appealing to a lot of people, too. What do you think the average Chinese opinion is of Hong Kong and what needs to be done with Hong Kong? It's pretty negative, to be honest. They see Hong Kong as, as arrogant. They see Hong Kong as, as ungrateful children. They see the territory as something, they see it as something that has to be crushed um, and brought back into line. Um, there are, of course, Chinese who sympathize with the Hong Kongers, who see them as holding up rights that have been lost as, and even as preserving culture that's been lost to the mainland because of things like traditional characters, the Cantonese language, Chinese religion. Um, but I would say that the majority opinion is as much as we can tell, which is always hard, um, is quite close to that sort of nationalist line at the moment. As the pandemic starts to ease, James, what's your prediction for the remainder of 2020? Do you expect to see bigger, even possibly more violent protests in Hong Kong than what we saw last year? I think, yes, I think we're going to see very intense clashes. Um, I think we'll see big shutdowns as the government attempts to prevent the numbers from getting out onto the street. Um, I think I would be, I would expect some kind of flashpoint incident. Um, you know, if the police, if the police kill somebody or if, or if there's a big arrest, that could put, that could put lots of people out there in, um, in moments. Um, and it's going to just be a very volatile and fraught not just this year, but for you know years, maybe decades to come. Even if you, even if stuff goes quiet for a couple of years, it could flare up again at any moment. 
We just passed the 31-year anniversary of Tiananmen Square. Do you think that that still plays a role in, in how Beijing handles these protests and, and possibly keeps it from going further than it, it might want to? It's an interesting question. I, I think that Beijing, I think that Beijing is very, is, has a certain reluctance to use force when they know the cameras are watching. Um, because we've already seen mass violence used against Tibetans, against Uyghur. Um, after, uh, in 2009, for instance, after the riots in Uremchi, the People's Armed Police entered the city and um, began shooting pretty much any Uyghur man who was um, on the street after curfew. Um, but, any, but they are very aware that there are cameras in Hong Kong and that the world is watching Hong Kong. And I think that that is a restricting factor. I don't, and I, I think that's why they're going to be content to work through police and police brutality rather than actually unleashing sort of paramilitary forces or the PLA. Well, it's certainly going to be interesting to see what transpires over the coming months, but certainly a fiery situation remains in Hong Kong. James, thank you very much for taking time with us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you for having me. We've been joined by James Palmer, Deputy Editor at Foreign Policy. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. But with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed. PenFed's got great rates for everything.